Um, we're a church committed, aren't we, to teaching the passage, uh, the Bible passage by passage. So why are we doing something else on a Sunday evening? Well, just let me give you three reasons. Uh, first of all, the bulk of people come on a Sunday morning, and we want that to be the big focus of the week. That's when nearly always we have a straight talk on a passage of the Bible explained and applied. That's the main diet of the church, as most of us uh, get together. Um, secondly, though, two big meals in a day can lead to indigestion, can't they? Uh, certainly can with me nowadays. Um, but it means that on, after a Sunday morning, we can take time to inwardly digest what we hear. We want to let the word of God sink in. So two full bouts of the same thing make that harder, don't they, all in one day. And thirdly, there's nothing wrong with topical sermons if they're teaching us the Bible's truth. This allows us to look at topics in a way that we might not be able to or might not be so appropriate on a Sunday morning. This evening we're looking at some biblical lessons from church history. Why do that? Isn't that quite removed from the scriptures? Well, there's a danger sometimes as serious Bible readers that we lose touch with those who've gone before us. We reinvent the wheel and at the same time make the same mistakes as generations that have gone before us. There is a veritable goldmine in experiences and mistakes uh, of generations gone by. But there's also in that an inspiration to live for Jesus uh, because of these things too. So we can still be encouraged by what God did years ago today. Uh, as we've gone through our series in church history, we've looked from, uh, from very early in church history, a few guys there from the first century or so after Jesus, most from Turkey. I expected Nad to be around to give us a cheer for that. But uh, Turkey or the Middle East. We looked at some guys from around the time of the Protestant Reformation as well, all across Europe. And then most recently we fast forward to what historians call the first evangelical awakening, which happened in the UK and America in the 1700s, with figures like John Wesley and George Whitfield, who founded Methodism. This evening we're going to carry on with that era, but looking at one of the lesser mentioned figures of that time, Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. So first point, why Selina? Why are we looking at her? Well, so far we've focused on some of the big names, haven't we? The headliners that you'd put on the bill. Now, in some senses, Selina was a headliner. Um, and in some senses, she's not. She was a headliner because she was well known in her day because she was part of the aristocracy. She had a good relationship, apparently, with the king, King George III. But on the other hand, she wasn't Wesley or Whitfield, who were the front men in the evangelical awakening. She was, however, humanly speaking, instrumental in the spreading of the gospel across the country and across the world. And I'm conscious up until this point we've only focused on men in our church history talks. And I want to rectify that a bit, not to be woke. Uh, I'm not going to have a quota or anything like that. But just to reflect the reality that women through church history have had a huge impact. And not just the wives of well-known other Christian men. So, what's the story? What's the story? That's our second point. Selina was serious aristocracy in a time when that really meant something. She was born in a castle in 1707, the daughter of an earl. She married an earl, Theophilus Hastings, 9th Earl of Huntingdon at the age of 21, in what was effectively an arranged marriage. She lived in Donington Hall, which, yes, is next to Donington Park, if you're a fan of the races. Uh, and she was known quite early on as a pious woman. 
She had seen the funeral procession of a child um, her own age when she was nine, and it had started her thinking about death and what her eternal state was. She'd started reading her Bible, praying, and would often visit the sick and the poor with baskets of food and Bible verses. But if you were to speak to her later on, she'd tell you that she wasn't a true believer. That would come a number of years later. Her sister, Margaret, came under the sound of the gospel uh, of salvation through faith alone before her, through a man called Benjamin Ingham, who was linked with the Methodists. He was a Yorkshireman hey, uh, from Osset near Wakefield. My dad went to high school in Osset, so I know it very well. Uh, later on, Margaret would marry him, uh, but she first heard the gospel uh, from him. That's sort of by the by, but it's just one of those interesting historical facts. Margaret became a believer and sought to win her family and friends for the gospel. And Selina notes that she noticed the change in her sister. And when Selina became seriously ill, she recalled the many conversations that she'd had with her sister. She cast herself on God's mercy and was apparently overwhelmed with a feeling of joy and peace. By this point, she was 29 years old. Selina recovered from her illness and set about telling her family and friends of the gospel she had discovered through her sister. Her husband sadly never shared her faith but was supportive of her nonetheless and took her to all sorts of different meetings. He told a visiting speaker that he admired the morality of the Bible, but he couldn't comprehend the atonement. He couldn't understand why Jesus had died, a bit like Selina was before. Selina wrote to members of the aristocracy inviting them to hear Methodist preachers with varying results. Uh, they've got some copies of the, the replies that she received. But she didn't just reach out to the aristocracy, she reached out to the poor as well often taking her servants, uh, talking to her servants, sorry, on her estate about the gospel and ensuring that servants were invited to any evangelistic meetings that were being held on her grounds. And this carried on for a number of years. Ten years after her conversion, though, her husband died. Quite a lot of people in her life died as you sort of go through. By this point, she'd lost three of her seven children uh, and she loses most of them by, by the end. But this end where her husband died began a new stage of life for her. She became more and more involved in the Methodist movement. The first ever Methodist conference was held on her grounds at Donington Hall. She used her influence in the high echelon, in the high places of society to aid the gospel cause, complaining to Parliament when the Methodist preachers were being mistreated by Welsh magistrates, complaining to the King about the wild parties that the Archbishop of Canterbury was throwing in his palace. He got an official rebuke from the king. She opened her home to exhausted preachers who would come and rest there, people like Wesley and Whitfield. She made Whitfield and others her official chaplains, giving them more freedom to preach in places they hadn't been able to, now with the backing of a noble. She financed the building of chapels as preachers were beginning to be barred from the pulpits of parish churches. 63 new chapels were financed by her during a lifetime. She even sold off her own jewellery to build one in Brighton. In 1768, she set up a Bible college in Treveca in Wales. That's probably not the right pronunciation, is it, Richard? But Treveca in Wales, after six Methodist ministry students were kicked out of Oxford. So she just set up a Bible college. And she took an interest in the students, writing to them, even after they graduated uh, and went on in ministry. It wasn't all plain sailing. 
if you've been here for previous talks, you'll know that there was a fallout among the Methodists about the issue of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, I'm not going to get into that again, but Selina, like Whitfield uh, and others, were Calvinists. And the Wesley brothers and others were Armenians. It started to get nasty with them writing pamphlets against one another. And I think if you look back in history, there were faults on both sides, but it got to the point where Selina refused to work with John Wesley anymore, though she remained friendly with Charles. It meant, though, that her chapels and chaplains started to move in a different direction to the bulk of the Methodists in the UK. Things were further complicated when a vicar sued her for setting up a chapel in his parish and won. She could have a chapel, but it couldn't be a Church of England one. And for that reason, she ended up setting up her own denomination, the Lady Huntingdon Connection. Though she still insisted that her chaplains held to the 39 articles of the Church of England, and they were still to use the Book of Common Prayer. There's much more to tell. There was a Catholic plot on her life. She was planning at one point to be a missionary herself. She set up a trust in her name that, that gave money for, for years. The thing that really struck me, though, is that near to her, her death, she'd nearly given all her money away. She didn't have very much left. She'd set £300 aside for her funeral. She must, must have been watching all those adverts you see on TV, you know, set some money aside. But news came to her that one of her chapels in Birmingham needed £300. She spoke to a friend and confident, a confidant who told her that if she trusted Christ with her life and her death, then why not her funeral? So she decided to send the £300 to the chapel. The same day she received a cheque in the post for £300, so she was still able to pay for her funeral. Throughout her life, that gospel generosity and trust in Jesus marked her out. She was an incredible woman. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn? Well, three lessons just to think about for our final point. Firstly, the significance of gospel patrons. We had that passage in Romans 16 read to us. Did you notice some of the people that were mentioned there and how they were involved in the gospel? There was Phoebe right at the beginning, wasn't there? Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or deacon of the church, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She was a patron of Paul, a supporter no doubt financially and practically. Here she is delivering Paul's letter for him. There's also Priscilla and Aquila who have a church meeting in their house. They're opening up their home to see the gospel uh, brought to this area. All these are gospel patrons, giving their time and their resources to see the gospel go forward. And so much of what happened during this time could not have happened, humanly speaking, without the Countess helping out in the background with resources and influence. It's a story we see time and again in church history. John Wycliffe had John O'Gaunt. Martin Luther had Prince Frederick III. And the Methodists had Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. For every great evangelist or Christian hero of the faith, there are people sacrificially giving and supporting them. For every mystery check that comes through the post, funding an orphanage or a missionary, someone is sending those checks. The very building we're in was gifted by generous gospel benefactors. So never underestimate or undervalue the ministry of gospel patrons. They are always there in the background. They may not be the people at the front. They may not be the people that you remember. 
but they're giving sacrificially that the gospel might go forth. But having said that, we see with Selena that it's not an either or. The reason Selena wanted to fund gospel ministry is that she believed in the power of the gospel. And she preached the gospel at home to her family, to her friends, to her servants. She didn't outsource evangelistic responsibilities to others. You know, I'll paid my money so they can do it. She saw herself as part of the team. It was not front room versus back room. It was both. And again, that's a pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. So think about the Philippians, for example. Philippians 1 verse 7. Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We know, don't we, the reason that he wrote Philippians was they'd sent a generous financial gift to Paul. They're partners in, in that way. But they're also partners in that they're doing the same thing in Philippi that Paul is doing abroad. It's not that they've just sort of said, oh, well, our, 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 our commitment to the gospel is just to send money. No, actually, they're involved in personal evangelism. So if we're committed to the cause of the gospel, it will show itself in our pockets, yes, but also in our personal witness to others as well. So it's not an either or. She was actually involved in both. And then finally, problems from unexpected places. As we've seen with so many cases, the opposition and problems so often don't come from the outside, but from within. Within, uh, they had fallings out, not over doctrine per se, but the way that disagreement was handled was not pleasant at points. They managed to work together until they started taking aim at each other. I've looked into a bit this week. John Wesley even faked a pamphlet from the other side. It was an abridged document by the Calvinist side with outrageous comments inserted to make it claim, make them claim things that they weren't claiming. It was not pretty, it was petty, and it was not fitting for grown men, let alone ministers of the gospel. I couldn't help but think about the deeds of the flesh that we were talking about this morning, bringing factionalism and division into the church. Not because of the difference in doctrine, but because of how the sides then treated one another. The other source of problems was the established church, which forced Selena to found her own denomination. Again, something she seemingly had no desire to do. With there, you can see that envy and jealousy from within seems to cause more problems than opposition from outside. But isn't that what we see in the life of the Lord Jesus? If you think about who is attacking the Lord Jesus, it's not the tax collectors and sinners who put Jesus on the cross. It was the religious establishment who did so due to envy, same word as we saw this morning uh, in the, uh, the deeds of the flesh. It's unexpected places that you find opposition. But you know what? We should expect it in those cases, shouldn't we? We should expect that the devil will use all his different schemes to try and sidetrack the gospel. But praise the Lord for women like Selena, Countess of Huntingdon, who carried on, who kept going, and was still giving right up until her deathbed. Let's pray that God would work in our hearts to make us gospelly generous in whatever ways that we can be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the example of Selina. Father, we thank you for the way that you worked in her heart to make her gospelly generous. 
But again, we want to keep remembering, Father, thank you all the more for the Lord Jesus who uh, was so gospelly generous that he gave his very self for us. Father, that he was prepared to go to the cross and die for us. And Father, in all the sacrifices we make, Father, keep us looking back to that one big sacrifice. Help us to see him as our example who did not come to be served, uh, but, but to serve. And Father, help us to, to grow in those fruit of the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.